Father, thank you for this privilege to come into your presence in prayer. Thank you for beautiful people, for delicious food, for great fellowship, and above all, for Jesus. And I just pray that you would give us insight into something that cripples a lot of us of fear of failure and fear of how you view us when we fail. So I just pray that you would speak to us in a powerful way, that you would guide my thoughts in a way that will be pleasing to you, that will adequately represent how you view us. And I just pray that you would show us your glory tonight. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What if I fail? I'm going to skip that. So what I'd like to cover with you today, actually, let me tell you why this message came about. So I was teaching at an academy for three years in Tennessee, and I had a student there who was like a son to me and was giving him Bible studies. And at the end of the Bible study, um, I could sense the Spirit just had a hold of him. I don't know if you ever had this in personal ministry or whatever. You can, just, you can see it in their eyes that God's got them and that they're convicted. And so I, I told him, you know, you can hear him, can't you? And he said, yeah. And I said, what are you going to do about it? And he just paused. And then he said, I'm, he honestly responded and said, I'm afraid of disappointing him. That he had made this decision in the past to say yes to Jesus, and he failed. And he felt that it would be disingenuous to make a commitment to Jesus, being afraid that he would fail. He was afraid of letting God down. He was being honest. He was being forthright and was really wrestling with making that complete surrender because he didn't want to hurt God uh, by messing up and misrepresenting him. And just broke my heart to hear this from this precious young person. It's like a son to me. And we were able to work through it. He did make a decision, and things are better for him. But it's a genuine topic. It's a real topic that some of us are just terrified of putting God through the process again because we're just going to crash and burn anyway. And why put him through that? So what I'd like to cover today is the story of a man named Elijah and see how it is that God dealt with him in the midst of his hardships and his difficulties. And I think there's a lot of good lessons we can learn from this. Now, I'm speaking to a group of people that I'm assuming are Christ followers. So I want to make sure that's abundantly clear to contextualize the message. Uh, Elijah was not a heathen, right, who was on the run and messed up. Elijah was a man of God who messed up while being a man of God. Now, I want to kind of walk through their story. So, Elijah, this is from Prophecy in Kings 11 to 13, plus it's in Scripture, beginning in 1 Kings in the teens. But Elijah has this amazing experience. This guy is given a call from God, and his call specifically is to declare to the king that it's not going to rain at all in this land until I say so. Now, that's pretty audacious, isn't it? To be able to say that it's not going to rain until the time concludes, whenever it is that God says. He didn't say three and a half years when he was given that command, but until I'm committed to pray again and God asks me to pray again, there's not going to be rain here. It's not going to happen. But Elohite mentions in this call that he's given that there's nothing about his surroundings that would make him believe that drought was possible. The hills are green and rolling with verdure, and there's streams, and it just seems impossible, the call that God has given him, that he's supposed to give a message to the king about something that looks like it'll never happen. Maybe you've been in situations like this, that God has placed a call in your life that doesn't look feasible, and you could look silly even for making this decision. So he goes forward to the call that he's given, and she says, like a thunderbolt on a clear sky, he gives the message, and it's kind of like getting sucker punched. Like, by the time Ahab realized what happened, 
Elijah's gone. He's nowhere to be found. Just drops a bomb and leaves, man. And so Ahab doesn't fully know what's going to go on here, but then it does happen. There is a drought that comes over the nation of Israel. No rain does come, and it ends up being for three and a half full years. And Elijah, as he's running to save his own life, because Jezebel's not happy about this, God sends him to the brook Cherith. And as he's at the brook Cherith, he's fed by ravens. They miraculously deliver bread to this guy. Now, in my mind's eye, I would love to believe that this bread comes from Ahab's table, but I don't know, right? The text doesn't say so. But still, regardless, Elijah is miraculously provided for, and eventually gets to a point that he goes to the widow of Sarepta, and she's walking around gathering sticks, and he says, would you please make me a cake? And she says, look, you don't understand, man. Like, I'm taking a few twigs, I got a little bit of oil, I got a little bit of flour, I'm making one last meal for my son and I before we die. And he says, trust me in this, make a morsel for me first, I think he asked for water too, which isn't easy to come by. But he says, make a morsel for me first and then go. And he promises that God will provide for her. And she has a choice just like Elijah had a choice. Well, they believe what God says in spite of what they see. And she believes. And she is provided for throughout the span of his stay there. Things work out. Powerful story. That's great. But then Elijah is given a call that the time of this drought is to conclude. Go back and tell Ahab that things are going to change, and the showdown is about to happen. Well, someone who works for Ahab finds Elijah, and Elijah says, go tell Ahab that, he, that I'm here. And he says, do you have any care for me at all, man? Like, if I go and tell Ahab, and the Spirit of the Lord takes you someplace else, he's going to kill me. Like, they've checked every rock in Israel for you, man. And this isn't going to go well for me. I fear the Lord. I took 50 prophets of the Lord and hid them in a cave here and provided for them. And I took another 50 prophets of the Lord and hid them in this cave here. And Elijah said, I'm not going anywhere, tell him. So Ahab shows up, and then he literally greets Elijah by saying, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? Elijah's the problem, not their wicked pagan king, right, and his scandalous wife. And so it just doesn't go well, but Elijah then basically tells him it's time for a showdown. What Elijah basically tells him is, meet me at the flagpole, right? I grew up in public school, um, but, you know, when you had business, you needed to take care of somebody. You met him at the flagpole. For me, it was a clothing store across the street from the junior high. And not for me. I was never in that situation. Praise the Lord Jesus. But other people were, and I heard about it. And uh, you don't always have to participate in what everybody else is doing. Some things you can stay away from. It's a good idea. So anyway, he challenges, and he says, bring all the prophets of Baal and meet me at the top of Mount Carmel. Meet me at the flagpole, if you will. And he's got business in his eyes. And Ahab doesn't say, hang on, no, 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 who's the king here? Ahab doesn't. He obeys immediately. They bring all the prophets of Baal. The nation of Israel goes up to meet on top of the hill. And then Elijah says, how long do you guys tarry between two opinions? If God is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. And then he lays down the gauntlet and says, look, you set up an altar and I'll set up an altar. You go first. And if you call fire down from heaven, your God is the only God. And if I call found fire from heaven, my God is the only God, and it seems like a fair request to them. So they start the process, they assemble their altar, and then begins this scene of absolute madness. They're jumping, they're leaping, they're screaming, they're cutting themselves, they're bleeding all over the place, and they're trying to get the attention of their gods so that this thing is going to be lit ablaze. And she says, the sacrifice remains unconsumed, amen? And she says that Satan would have done whatever he could to make this thing blow up. 
but she says, God has set his bounds. Amen? Couldn't do it. So they're making fools of themselves for a while. And she says that eventually the people of Israel, they began to be weary of this type of religion. They kind of got worn out by this and didn't really have so much of an interest in it anymore. And so they're trying to inflict more. And Elijah even begins to mock them and says, you know, maybe your God is asleep. Maybe you just need to, you know, speak louder. Or maybe he's on a journey somewhere and he's mocking them because their gods are not answering. And eventually they kind of ramp up the, the ridiculousness it still doesn't get anywhere, and they kind of get to a point where, like, they're so tired, they're just kind of like, what, what do you think we should, you, you do, and they just kind of quit, looking like fools. The sacrifice remains unconsumed. And she says that the, the contrast is stark, because what Elijah does is he, um, to the best of my recollection, he actually reassembles a torn down altar to the Lord, and he puts a sacrifice on top of it, digs a trench around it, and he says, Take water and douse that thing. Now, I, didn't, I was baptized as a 25-year-old, like seven years ago. But I didn't do Pathfinders. I don't fully understand what it is. It's kind of like the Boy Scouts I hear. It's something like that of sorts. But you know how, to, how many people were in Pathfinders here? Anybody in this room were Pathfinders? So you know how to start a fire with your bare hands, yeah? Um, I don't know why you're laughing. Uh, and I, I used to teach disaster response at Heritage Academy, and... I set a few fires with my own bare hands, too. Um, I was teaching them how to start a fire with a magnifying glass and wasn't paying attention, was looking in the direction, and I caught my shoe on fire. And so I've, I've, I've started some fires with my own bare hands, too, some intentionally and some not. But in this situation, would, would you recommend, as pathfinders, putting water on top of the thing that you're about to light? Yes or no? No. no. And he says, douse that thing. And they do it three times, and that trench that he dug around the altar is now filled with water. And she says the contrast is stark because what Elijah does, she says, is he kneels down and he offers a simple, humble prayer, knowing that God hears and that God is there. And as he prays, fire comes down from, the, from heaven, consumes the sacrifice on the altar, consumes the stones of the altar, and even licks the water out of the trench. And she says that when Elijah called for worship earlier, not a single soul would stand in loyalty to Jehovah. And there's Israelites on that mountaintop. No one would stand for Jesus. But now, once this whole fire consumes the top of the mountaintop, all the people fall down and say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now God's got some witnesses. And then Elijah says, grab the prophets of Baal and don't let a single one escape. And they kill him, all the prophets of Baal. And he looks Ahab in the eyes and he says, get ye up from here because there's a sound of an abundance of rain. And she says the same thing here that she says earlier, that there's nothing that the eye would see that would tell him that this is going to happen. In the same way that whenever he's to call for drought and it looks like nothing's going to happen, now there's no hope of rain. It's just barren wasteland. But again, he chooses to believe what God says instead of what he sees. And then he sends his servant to go look above the sea and to tell him if he finds any clouds. What do you see? Tell me what you see. And the guy comes back, nothing. He says, go back. And he, he kneels. He puts his head between his knees and prays each time. What did you find? Nothing. And then he kneels and prays again. And he sends him seven times. And I remember speaking with Paul Vogoy about this. And he said the more research he's done, he said that he, he's left with the impression that the number seven in this instance is not so much about the number of times that he went, but the Hebrew significance that it was until completion. Meaning that Elijah was going to keep sending this guy until what needed to happen, happened. Does that make sense? 
because numerology is significant to Hebrews. And not only this, though, the posture that Elijah was assuming with the head between the knees, which, by the way, is also the ideal position if lightning is striking around you. Free public service announcement, no charge to you. Um, now back to our regularly scheduled program. So, but if you, like this is the way that he was praying, and it took a long time for Pavel Goya to find what this posture meant to Hebrews. But he eventually was able to find it, and it's a sign of, ter of determination. Everything about what Elijah is doing is demanding that God will do what he said that he would do. So notice, he's not saying, God, give me a Ferrari, God, give me a Ferrari, God, give me a Ferrari. He's demanding that God himself will do what he said he would do. You understand the difference? And that is not presumption, right? That's holding God to his promises, not saying, hey, I really would like it if fill in the blank, and I'm just going to keep pestering you until I get it. Big difference here. And so eventually the guy comes back. And he says, I found a cloud the size of a man's hand. And you know what she says in response to this? Three words. Anybody know what it is? This was enough. It's all he needed. Some of us, we want to see the whole meal before we go forward with God doing something, yeah? Or doing something for God. That wasn't the case for Elijah. He took God in his word, and any evidence that God had heard was, was sufficient for him. So then he says, you better get out of here. Ahab, and then this, that one little cloud turns into this large, angry black cloud, and it's dropping buckets of rain. And Ahab is heading back to Jezreel in his chariot without windshield wipers, without headlights, and all that good stuff. And Elijah, it literally says that he girds his loins. It's like the folding of the robe thingy to run in a little more dignified fashion. And as he's running, he goes ahead of the chariot of Ahab to lead him back to Jezreel. And this guy's been fasting all day and is weary and tired, but God gives him supernatural strength to lead Ahab's chariot all the way back to Jezreel. I don't know if you've ever been in a really strong downpour where you just kind of like get behind a semi because you know they're not going to mash on the brakes and just kind of ride it out slowly at a safe distance because you can't see much. This is basically the purpose that Elijah's serving. So they get to the city. Elijah curls up in a ball outside of the city in the rain and just passes out of sleep, and you can't blame him, right? Just exhausted and famished. Ahab tells his wife, Jezebel, what it is that happened, and she is livid. Oh my, is she angry. And she says, God do so to you. I forget how she phrased it, but she basically says, there's not going to be any hope with this guy living, if I have anything to say with it. Word gets to Elijah and this is where his story takes a turn for the worse. Because this man who, sh who stands like a rock and proves that God alone is God now embarks upon a very dark journey in his experience. He's terrified for his life, and Elijah begins to run. This rock for God is now running from the wrath of an infuriated woman. And as he's on the run, his assistant goes with him for a while and eventually says, look, just go your own way. And what we're told would have happened had Elijah not run then is, is heartbreaking. We're literally told that Ahab would have been converted, Jezebel would have been judged, and the nation would have been brought to reform. What did he do? He ran. So this guy is an absolute loser and a failure in the eyes of, of many people who just have common sense. When it comes to the call of God, what God wanted to do, what actually happened, this guy just blew it really bad. Elijah's running and running and running and running, and he eventually gets to a point that he gets under a juniper tree and just crashes, right? Just passes out of sleep. And when he gets to this area, 
God then begins to do something that's very interesting to me. That let me, let me start with this, and then I'll go into what happened. She says that Elijah had spec- expected much from the miracle wrought on Carmel. He had hoped that after this display of God's power, Jezebel would no longer have influence over the mind of Ahab, and that there would be a speedy reform throughout Israel. So he had time expectations on how God would work, apparently. And we've probably had those too, right? Where we, we gave up before the miracle came because we just got tired of waiting. That's what happens in his experience. And she says, All day on Carmel's height he had toiled without food, yet he guided the chariot of Ahab to the gate of Jezreel. His courage was strong, despite the physical strain under which he had labored. But a reaction such as frequently follows high faith and glorious success was pressing upon Elijah. He feared feared that the reformation begun on Carmel might not be lasting. You ever been there? You had this mountaintop experience with Jesus, and you're just so distrustful of having joy in the Lord that you just don't think it's going to last? Elijah had this battle here. And she says, it might not be lasting, and depression seized him. Elijah spirals into depression, but it gets worse. He had been exalted to Pisgah's top, and now he was in the valley. While under the inspiration of the Almighty, he had stood the severest trial of faith, but in this time of discouragement, with Jezebel's threat sounding in his ears, and Satan still apparently prevailing through the plotting of this wicked woman, he lost his hold on God. Elijah lost his hold on God, and he seized with depression. How can this even happen? Like, this guy just called down fire from heaven and was a rock star for Jesus, and now he's depressed and has lost his complete hold on God. It can happen, can it? Some of us have had that. We had these mountaintop experiences with Jesus, and then we just crash and burn. And we think, was any of it even real? Was the whole thing a lie? His story continues. He'd been exalted above measure, and the reaction was tremendous. Forgetting God, Elijah fled on and on until he found himself in a dreary waste alone. Utterly wearied, he sat down to rest under a juniper tree, and sitting there, he requested for himself that he might die. I don't want to fight this battle anymore. You ever been there? Fight the battle for the Lord, the enemy strikes back, and you think, well, I'm not going to make it. Like, and you even feel like such a loser because I did something for God and then I just left God. Like, it, the shame is just insurmountable in moments like this. And so he forgets God and he fled on and on in a weary waste, weary waste alone. Utterly wearied, he sat down under a juniper tree. He says, take away my life for I'm no better than my father's. A fugitive far from the dwelling places of men, his spirits crushed by bitter disappointment. He desired never again to look upon the face of man. And at last, utterly exhausted, he fell asleep. He wants nothing more to do with ministry. He's forgotten God. He's seized with depression. He's lost his hold on God. And he's on the run from the call of God in his life. And by being on the run, Ahab isn't converted. Jezebel is still doing her thing. She doesn't get judged. And the nation of Israel isn't brought to revival. Many of us would think Jesus should just wipe, you know, wash his hands of this loser and move on to somebody else. He obviously isn't cut out for it. Let's move on to somebody else. But I want you to see how God deals with this man. The next thing that happens in this chapter is that God sends, again, an angel from heaven to make the guy lunch. 
loaves of bread baked upon the coals of fire, a loaf of bread, and a cruise of water is placed beside him. The angel awakes him. He gives him the food. Elijah eats the food. He drinks the water. He falls back asleep. And then the angel comes back after a little bit longer, gives him more food and more water. And you know what the angel says to him? He says, you need to take nourishment for the journey is too hard for you. What journey? He's running from God with everything that he has. And that's precisely the point. God literally sends two miracle meals from heaven for this guy to give him strength to keep running for himself, from himself. God gives him sustenance to keep running from himself. And then in this meal, these two meals, he's able to run 40 days to eventually where he ends up is Mount Horeb, which is actually Mount Sinai. And when he gets to this mountain, he is greeted by God himself. And notice God doesn't say, Elijah, I'm so disappointed in you. You should be ashamed of yourself. You failed me. He's not greeted with shouting. He's not greeted with rebuke. He's greeted with a still, small voice. How God deals with this man is beyond my wildest understanding. That's not the way that I would deal with him, and I'm very glad for that. I'm glad that I'm not calling the shots on situations like this. But she picks up on this. She says, Into the experience of all, there come times of keen disappointment and utter discouragement. Days when sorrow is the portion, and it's hard to believe that God is still the kind benefactor of his earthborn children. Days when troubles harass the soul, till death seems preferable to life. It is then that many lose their hold on God and are brought into the slavery of doubt, the bondage of unbelief. How many people go through this? Many. Could we at such times discern with spiritual insight the meaning of God's providences, we should see angels seeking to save us from ourselves. God sends angels from heaven to save us from ourselves in moments like this, to keep us going. Striving to plant our feet on a foundation more firm than the everlasting hills and new faith, new life would spring into being. But listen to what she says here. Did God forsake Elijah in his hour of trial? Oh no, she says. He loved his servant no less when Elijah felt himself forsaken of God and man than when in answer to his prayer, fire flashed from heaven and illumined the mountaintop. God loves you no less when you crash and burn than he does when you have your mountaintop experience for Jesus. He loves you no less. We don't feel that way, though, do we? In fact, what we do is we project our unbelief in ourselves upon God. God looks at me in the way that I look at me. He's disappointed. And again, we're talking about the context of converted people here, right? To be abundantly clear, he doesn't view us that way. And God shows up and asks the man a very simple question. What are you doing here? Now, I'm so disappointed in you, Elijah. I'm so angry with you, Elijah. He just asks him a logical question in a still, small voice. What are you doing here? Who sent you here? 
Certainly it wasn't me. I have a plan for you, Elijah. I want you to go back to the nation of Israel. They need you. I need you. And this is amazing to me. God can choose somebody else, but he doesn't. He awakens Elijah, he encourages Elijah, and then he sends him right back to where he left him. You ever had these moments of just barrenness in your Christian experience? Go back to where you left God. Go back. And start the process all over again. Wherever you left off, just go right back there and pick up the journey where you left off. This is what God does with Elijah. He doesn't start at the beginning again. He goes back and he says, I want you to equip Elisha and Jehu to finish this work. They need you, and I need you. Go back. Some of us are in the midst of darkness, despondency, and we ourselves are on the run from God. The call of God is leading to hardship, to difficulty, and it didn't come in the time that we wanted it to. And so we've bailed. We may be here in body, but we're not here in heart or in mind. And God's asking me the very same question. What are you doing here? This isn't what I have in store for you. Go back. This is God's desire for us. I didn't call you here, and I'm not giving up on you because you are here. Go back. This is what she says. God met his tried servant with the inquiry in 1 Kings 19.9. What doest thou here, Elijah? I sent you to the brook Cherith, and afterward to the widow of Sarepta. I commissioned you to return to Israel and to stand before the idolatrous priests on Carmel. And I girded you with strength to guide the chariot of the king to the gate of Jezreel. But who sent you on this hasty flight into the wilderness? What errand have you here? Brace yourselves for this. To every child of God whose voice the enemy of souls has succeeded in silencing, the question is addressed. What doest thou here? I commissioned you to go into all the world and to preach the gospel, to prepare a people for the day of God. Why are you here? Who sent you? Young people, adults, what are you doing here? What am I doing here? Go back, he says. I need you. I'm not done with you. Go back. Through Elijah's inspiration and leadership, reform does eventually come to the nation of Israel. Through Elisha and Jehu, Jezebel is judged, and everything that needed to happen did happen. Right? Revival started to come to Israel for a span. Um, but God redeemed this work by chasing after Elijah. He reasons with him and calls him back. And some of you in this room, he's chasing after you too. God loves you so much that he's going to give you a meal to strengthen you to keep going from him for a while, if you have to. If that's what it's going to take for you to just run it out of your system, fine. But here's the beautiful thing. He can keep up with you. You can't run faster than him. And he's going to track you down, and he's going to ask you that very same question. What are you doing here? Why are you here? And he's going to ask you to go back, because God still needs you. But I failed. So what? Come back. I still need you. There's still a work to be done. We're told in Steps to Christ that there will be many times that you will have to bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus. 
And then she goes on to explain how the battle is won. It's a battle of the will. And I'm fully convinced that Scripture teaches that we will overcome. There's going to come a day where you lay that thing down for the last time and you don't go back. But the only way that happens is if you answer the question, what are you doing here? And if you go back. Peter answered that question. Judas did not. Elijah did answer that question. I praise the Lord Jesus for this. Will you? That's the question. If under trying circumstances, men of spiritual power pressed beyond measure become discouraged and desponding, if at times they see nothing desirable in life, that they should choose it, this is nothing strange or new. You're not even a loser for thinking that. She says this is nothing strange or new. Let all such remember that one of the mightiest of the prophets fled for his life before the rage of an infuriated woman. A fugitive, weary and travel-worn, bitter disappointment crushing his spirits, he asked that he might die. But it was when hope was gone and his life work seemed threatened with defeat that he learned one of the most precious lessons of his life. In the hour of his greatest weakness, he learned the need and the possibility of trusting God under circumstances the most forbidding. And it usually takes moments like this for us to learn that lesson. And God knows that, and that's why he doesn't give up, because the class isn't over. The class isn't about you calling down fire from heaven. The class is about this. When things are going well, yeah, it's easy to stand for God. But what do you do when the whole world is falling apart around you and it's not going as you thought it would? Are you going to get mad at God and run away? Or are you going to trust him in circumstances the most forbidding? That's the question. But the good news is, even if you do run, he's going to track you down and ask you the question, what are you doing here? Those who are standing in the forefront of the conflict and are impelled by the Holy Spirit to do a special work will frequently feel a reaction when the pressure is removed. And I've had this after big campaigns and so forth. That's when I get hammered and nailed. After the mountaintop experiences of Jesus, that's when the heat comes. You feel that you're bulletproof. And Satan wants you to feel like you're bulletproof. He can't stop the work that God wanted. But it's in those moments, those lulls of inactivity, that he just brings that left hook that we're not looking for. But the story's not over. Despondency, which is hopelessness, may shake the most heroic faith and weaken the most steadfast will. And then she says three words that I could not believe. But God understands. What? God should be disappointed. God should be frustrated. But God understands? We're about to see why, but this is good news for us. Very good news. God is not excusing sin. God is not excusing failure. But sin and failure don't keep you from God's redeeming hand and from Him still being able to use you if you come back. If you repent of your sin, if you ask to be put back out, he'll do it. You can get off the mat, you can turn to Jesus, and you can go back. And that's good news. God understands, and he still pities and loves. He reads the motives and purposes of the heart. To wait patiently, to trust when everything looks dark, is the lesson that the leaders in God's work need to learn. 
Heaven will not fail them in their day of adversity. Nothing is apparently more hopeless, yet really more invincible than the soul that feels its nothingness and relies wholly on God. When your life is filled with failure, you can come to a God who knows no failure. This is good news, beloved. And he loves people who were filled with failure. You can come back. It's not over. You can come back and start the process again. But the amazing thing to me is that Elijah's story ends in a way that no one would expect when you see this crash and burn right after this great success story. God literally sends a fiery chariot from heaven and takes this guy to heaven without tasting death. It's amazing. And if God can do that for someone who crashed and burned but came back, he can do it for you. When, those spli- when, the, when the skies are split open like a scroll and Jesus comes back, you can go with them. So you crashed today. Go back. And you can be ready then, amen? It's good news. But it gets even better. Moses has a very similar story. Moses was given a call by God to lead the Israelites, and he got so frustrated with these obdurate people that he literally at one point, I think it's in the book of Numbers, he says, if he, Moses, speaking to God, literally says, if you have any care for me at all, kill me right here and right now, because these people are driving me crazy. He wants to drop his keys to the door and leave. And he ends up getting really frustrated, and he says, must we bring water for you out of this rock, you obstinate people? And this isn't good, because he's claiming something that only belongs to God. Moses isn't bringing water for these people. God is. And God, his dealings with leadership is firm. It has to be. Because they have greater responsibility. They're an example to the people. And he says, Moses, you cannot go with them into the promised land. And Moses begs him, please reconsider. Please. And God literally tells him, I don't want to talk about it. Don't talk about that anymore. I don't want to talk about that. I'm not going there. God gives Moses this experience right before his death where he takes him up to Mount Nebo and he gives him this beautiful picture of what the Canaan land is about to look like. And then he gives him this this futuristic panorama of what's going to happen with the nation of Israel. And it's depressing because Israel's going to make a mess of life. But the good news is the promised Messiah will come. The true fulfillment of Israel is going to come and he will succeed. He will overthrow the forces of darkness. He will equip the people of God to stand in righteousness at the end of time. A people clean and spotless who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. A people who overcome. He will do it. He lays Moses to rest and God buries Moses Himself. But we're told in the book of Jude that when Michael the archangel, when Jesus is warring with Satan for the body of Moses, He rebukes the devil and takes the body of Moses. He takes him to heaven. And just imagine, two losers who crashed right on the verge of receiving the promises of God, and both of them get to go to heaven before anybody else apart from Enoch. This is good news for us. This does not justify failure, but it lets us know that failure is not the final thing. It doesn't have to be. Are you with me? It's not the end. It doesn't have to be. If you refuse to get off the mat, it's going to be. But if you hear the call of God, what are you doing here? and you go back, the story's not over. Now, what ends up happening is amazing to me in the Gospel of Luke. Turn with me there, would you? Go to the book of Luke, chapter 9. 
Now that we have this context, go to Luke chapter 9, beginning of verse 28. Oh, man. Luke chapter 9 and verse 28, beginning in verse 28, I should say. Luke chapter 9, beginning of verse 28. It says this. Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration. James, John, and Peter have gone with him. And Jesus is transfigured in this powerful, beautiful way. He's in a glorified body. And two people come to visit Jesus in these verses. 28 to 31. Now it came to pass about eight days after he said that there are some here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. About eight days later, Peter, James, and John go up on the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, verse 29, the appearance of his face was altered. His robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him. And who are they? Moses and Elijah, the two losers, the two quitters, the two people who crashed and burned right on the verge of receiving the promises of God and seeing the power of God in an even greater way. Isn't this amazing? Just imagine the conversation that happens in heaven. Hey, Moses, come here. I want you to encourage my son. He's struggling with his mission right now. He knows it's going to cost him and it's going to be difficult, and you know what that's like, don't you? Go tell my son. Tell him what I did for you. And tell him that this is worth it. And Elijah, you're going too. You know what it's like. This is so amazing to me to see how God deals with these people. And he uses them to encourage Jesus. Of all people, he sends these two men to go and encourage his son. Your story's not over yet. It doesn't have to be. You can go back. They went back, and their story ended far better than anyone would have imagined if they didn't fall. And they were given this immensely high privilege to go and to minister to Jesus, who was about to make a way for your salvation. This is good news, very good news. What I'd like to close with you is, uh, close with, is some promises. And... These are found in a few different places. I'll send these notes to, again, the e-com. But this is from Steps to Christ. There are those who, 64.1, Steps to Christ, 64.1. There are those who have known the pardoning love of Christ and who really desire to be children of God. Yet they realize that their character is imperfect, their life faulty, and they are ready to doubt whether their hearts have been renewed by the Holy Spirit. To such, I would say, do not draw back in despair. We shall often have to bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus because of our shortcomings and mistakes, but we are not to be discouraged. Even if we are overcome by the enemy, we are not cast off, not forsaken and rejected of God. No. Christ is at the right hand of God who also maketh intercession for us. Said the beloved John, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have what? An advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And do not forget the words of Christ, that the Father himself loves you. God the Father himself loves you. Right now. In your deepest, darkest, 
ugliest, grossest moments, God the Father loves you. He doesn't endorse what you're doing, but it doesn't mean that he stops loving you either. He loves you enough to chase you down and ask you the question. He believes in you. God needs you, and he wants you back in the fight. He desires to restore you to himself and to see his own purity and holiness reflected in you. And if you will but yield yourself to him, he that hath begun a good work in you will carry it forward to the day of Jesus Christ. Pray more fervently, believe more fully, and as we come to distrust our own power, let us trust the power of our Redeemer, and we shall praise him who is the health of our countenance. And I want to close with this thought here from 10MR175.1. She says, there's someone who's wrestling with assurance of salvation, whether God could actually believe in them. And this is what she says. The message from God to me for you is, him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. John 6, 37. If you have nothing else to plead before God, but this one promise from your Lord and Savior, you have the assurance that you will never, never be turned away. It may seem that you are hanging upon a single promise, but appropriate that one promise and it will open to you the treasure house of the riches of the grace of Christ. Cling to that promise and you are safe. Him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. Present this assurance to Jesus and you are as safe as though inside of the city of God. If that's all you got... I'm not worth being received. I'm not worth being accepted. I've done nothing right in my life at all. If all you have is this promise, him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast him out. That is your ticket in, she says. You are as safe as though inside of the city of God. And God will do a work of transformation in your life that you will not be the same person when you started this process. Won't happen. You are not to examine your feelings and put any dependence upon your emotions, for they may be as varied as the wind. But take to your heart this one promise, and you will find it a passport to all the rich treasures of heaven. You are precious to the heart of Christ. And he speaks, saying unto you, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And some people get freaked out by this word. Rest is not inactivity. It's not, in this sense. The people who rest in Christ do more for Jesus than the people who don't. Because they don't, take responsi- they don't claim responsibility for it. They realize that it came from God. And they're fully surrendered to God, and God can do more through them than anyone else. Does that make sense? So rest is not inactivity. Don't be afraid of that word. It's good news. Now, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then she says, there is no perhaps or maybe about this promise. The I will, meaning I will give you rest of Christ, is an assurance that cannot be made any stronger. He speaks further, saying, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly of heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I don't know what your experience is right now. I don't know where you are in your journey. I don't know if you're someone who's come, that you're in the middle of a mountaintop experience, that you're just thriving for Jesus right now, and you just feel bulletproof. Maybe you're seized with depression, you've forgotten God, you've lost your hold on God, and you're on the run. You're running as far as you can from the call of God, and you're running to Mount Sinai, not to speak with God, but to run from the call of God in your life. Wherever you find yourselves today, there's very good news for us. 
There's a God in heaven who desires you to be saved even more than you do. And who has a way prepared for you. And is not limited by your failure. Here's what he's limited by. The people that God has to say no to at the end of time are the people who have said no to themselves. The people who refused to believe the things about them that God believed. They chose to believe a lie instead of accepting the truth, as it says in Thessalonians. They believed a lie. They chose to not accept that they could be saved and that God would want to work through them. They rejected God. They rejected themselves. And they're going to be lost. And they will be destroyed. I'm not, not turning into a powder puff here. But you have to understand today that God is not giving up on you. But there will come a day to which God has to yield to you giving up on yourself. And you don't have to. God loves you enough to chase you down and ask you the question, but what are you going to do with that? God is asking you today, what are you doing here? And he's asking you to go back. Go back to where you left him. You can pick back up. You can repent. You can come home. And the Bible promises that he who began to work in you will promise to see it through. She says in another place that we can please God by believing his promises. Well, what does the word of God say about me? That you're his beloved. That you're the love of his life. That you're his wife. That he's pursuing tenaciously. But the problem is we don't view God as our husband. We view him as our taskmaster. But Hosea actually addresses this. He says, you will no longer call me my master. You will now call me my husband. God has endearing agape love for you, and he's asking you to respond. He's asking you to believe the things about yourself that he believes. And when this becomes a reality, when we come face to face with expectations of God and the things that he asks of us, we're not afraid of surrendering to him because we know who he is. We know how he views us. We know that he has our best interest at heart, and why would we run from him? We can say like Peter, to whom else am I going to go? You're all I got. And if God is asking me to surrender, it must mean because this is for my good. Surrender is not a bad thing when it's the right person. And many of us have these awful, grotesque pictures of God in our heart and in our mind that he's this disappointed parent that is ready to be done with me and is holding his finger over the red button. That's not the picture of Scripture. There is a real judgment. There are real people who will be lost. But every single human being has a way prepared for them to be saved. All of us. Every single one. We're not Calvinists. We don't believe that God predestined some people to be lost from the get-go. That's not true. It's grotesque and it's ugly. You can be saved. You can come back, and you can come back today, right now. So I want to invite you to stand with me, and I'd like to have a closing prayer dedication over you. But I have to ask, the theme that we've been asking over the last three day, two days is, what if it's better? What if God and religion are infinitely better than we imagined? How many people have come to find that to be the case for the last two days and the last three messages? It's good news. Doesn't mean it's over. There are real expectations. There's a process. Sanctification is real. God needs a people to stand in the day of God who will stand victoriously. That's all true. But the bedrock on where we start and how we read Scripture and apply the promises of God start with our picture of God. More time afforded, we go even further with this. But we're going to start with this, and I trust that you'll get more as we go. Okay? But I'd like to close with a word of prayer and just have a prayer of dedication for those of us who are coming on the, off the heels of failure, who are failing, even now. 
And maybe for those of us, even on our mountaintop experiences, that God would protect us and pursue us in the valley to come. God in heaven, I thank you that the gospel is good news, that the things that the word of God says about you are endearing, they're attractive, and they cause us to be drawn to you. But Lord, I just pray that you would, that the cross of Jesus and the actions of Jesus would eclipse the lies of the devil in our heart and in our mind. That we would not act out of sympathy to the one who uses us like a plow mule and reject the one who gave all for us. I pray that we would be willing to give all for you, to make a complete surrender, and to recognize that for every good deed we do, we're entirely dependent upon Jesus. We can't do it ourselves, but we can trust you, we can yield to you, we can surrender to you and find power from heaven to obey, and not only to obey, but to love obedience and for it to be our natural impulse. We want that. Lord Jesus, if you can transform the life of Moses and Elijah, you can do something with me, and I'm glad for that. And you can do that for people here. So I just pray that you would cover our sins with the blood of Jesus, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, and Lord, I pray that you would not stop pursuing us, that you would not give us rest or peace if we're running from you, that you would not give us rest or peace if we're trying to avoid the call on our life and the convictions that you have in our lives. And I pray that we would be saved and that we would recognize that you are what we had been looking for all along, and that we can rejoice the fact that we are what you have been looking for all along. Make that a reality tonight, we pray. And we ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.